Altogether, I've had four shipwrecks and a fire during my thirty-odd years at sea, but by far and away the worst of them all is the one I'm going to tell you about right now, the loss of the Titanic. I joined her in Belfast while she was still in the builder's hands. The biggest and finest ship in the world. And given the normal life of a ship, I'm pretty sure she would have proved the fastest. But let me say right here and now, neither that night nor that voyage were we out for any record. That was the voice of second officer Charles Herbert Lightoller. His lifeline was dotted with a series of near misses and heroism, but Lights, as many of his colleagues and friends called him, acknowledged that for better or worse, his legacy would be forever tied to the ill-fated ocean liner. His survival left him as the senior most surviving officer, leaving him to answer questions on behalf of Captain E.J. Smith, in addition to navigating the loss of his friends and, and colleagues. Lightoller had to bear the burden of the stigma of the men who survived the sinking. While Smith, Murdoch, and shipbuilder Thomas Andrews followed the RMS Titanic to its watery grave, others, such as White Star Line Chairman J. Bruce Ismay and billionaire Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon, climbed aboard lifeboats and survived. In the wake of the tragedy, the public sneered at the perceived cowardice of these men who escaped the noble but tragic fate of going down with the ship. But history's been a little bit kinder to Lightoller, primarily because he survived in a series of freak incidents that seemed almost divine. To the scientific mind, it's, it's easy to comprehend and quantify what happened to Charles Lightoller. Lightoller was on top of the officer's quarters on the port side of the ship, frantically trying to cut loose collapsible lifeboat B and lower it into the water. But these were the last moments of the Titanic, and panic was unfolding everywhere. Lightoller was not quick enough, though, and with little options left, he plunged into the icy cold waters, which at 28 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 2 degrees Celsius, must have felt like daggers piercing through his clothes into his skin. Taking salt water through his nostrils, he attempted to instruct those around him to swim away from the ship to avoid being pulled under. But it was then that Lightoller found himself pinned against the shaft, being pulled down with the ship. Despite kicking and struggling with all his might, Lightoller realized the futility. He was going to drown. But at that exact moment, a steaming hot boiler made contact with the frigid waters of the North Atlantic and exploded like a hot glass bowl under a cold faucet. The explosion created an air bubble that carried him back to the surface, to the chaos. Despite the screams and crying in the black of the night, Lightoller took a moment to catch his breath and assess the situation around him. He turned around, and there, right next to him, was collapsible lifeboat B. Overturned, but better than nothing. But when you know the whole story, it's almost as if the Titanic, a ship that took the souls of 1,500 people with it, took one look at Charles Lightoller and said, Not you. Not yet. This is God's Favorites. 
a history podcast. Charles Lightoller, episode one. As a child in the early 90s, I became extremely mesmerized by the Titanic. This was even prior to James Cameron's 1997 blockbuster film. I could rattle the names of crews and all the legends and stories and songs. However, it was on a long drive where I was listening to a podcast about the Titanic. Specifically, it was the podcast Time Suck, hosted by Dan Cummins. The host briefly mentioned Lightoller's interesting life story. It was only a few sentences, but my mouth dropped open. I knew who Lightoller was, I just never knew anything about his fascinating life past the shipwreck. How? How had I never heard this man's story? It was then that I decided to learn all I could about who this man was. I obtained a copy of his autobiography, Titanic and Other Ships, only to immediately discover that Charles Lightoller truly believed his life began at the age of 13, the age he discovered that he would become a sailor. Not surprising, I suppose, because even on land, that was who Charles Lightoller was. It took more extensive research to find out who Charles Herbert Lightoller started as, and his story starts in Chorley. The town of Chorley is located in Lancashire and was predominantly an industrial area. The Lightoller family ran a successful cotton mill for years. Its primary export was textiles, but most of those mills no longer exist. It was once named one of England's most depressing places to live, but interviews with residents scoffed at that title. And it was here on the 30th of March, 1874, that Charles Herbert Lightoller was born to Sarah Jane and Frederick James Lightoller. His early years were marked with tragedy. Within three weeks of his birth, Sarah Jane contracted scarlet fever and died. Two of his siblings and a grandfather followed suit in quick succession. Charles, however, remained untouched by death, and that's a theme we will revisit frequently, as Lightoller always seemed to be one step ahead of the Grim Reaper. Most notably absent from his autobiography and other books on Lightoller are mentions of his father. James Lightoller came to be in charge of the family business, the cotton mill, but business was not good, and unlike his son, James was not willing to stay on a sinking ship, albeit a metaphorical one. James remarried and left alongside his new bride to go to New Zealand. Charles and his other siblings were left in the care of his aunt and uncle. Like his father, it was expected that Charles would go into the family business, but that never seemed to be his fate. Charles always had this intuition that he would never work at the mill, that it wasn't his path. He was correct, but he was also not entirely sure what the other path was. Oh, he was smart, but as biographer Patrick Stinson explained, his marks at Chorley Grammar School were, um, not remarkable. It was a trip to Liverpool with his uncle that laid his future out in front of him. His uncle had taken him to the docks, and as he tells it, a sailor invited him aboard a boat. This, this, he thought, was the way out or at least an excellent bluffing tool. 
When Charles presented the idea of a sea apprenticeship to his uncle, the bluff was called, his uncle seemed utterly relieved at the idea that someone else would take care of his nephew. The only concern came from his half-sister, Janie. Janie was the closest thing Charles had to a mother, and she cared deeply for the boy. His uncle told Janie that four years of hard work at sea might knock some sense into the boy, but Janie was not consoled. She took Charles aside and made him promise her that he would not drown. I promise I will not drown, he said. The sea is not wet enough to drown me. Janie was not convinced, but nevertheless packed his gear of a sweater, boots, coats, and all the things a young sailor would need. And thus, at the age of 14, Charles signed on for a four-year apprenticeship. His uncle gladly paid a 40-pound fee and sent him aboard the Primrose Hill, a merchant ship that could stay afloat but otherwise had some questionable structural integrity. As for Charles, he would work for free, sleep in cramped quarters, and barely be fed. It was hell. But it was the hell that he had chosen instead of the back-breaking work of a mill in Chorley. The first few months were spent learning to keep down the moldy pork and food the apprentices were given as they were tossed about on stormy seas. The desperation of hunger also taught him another skill. Thievery. The apprentices on board the ship learned that there were many loose boards that connected to rooms with much better food. Some rooms contained leftovers from crew meals that would go to waste. Another led to a pantry. One particular apprentice, to whom Lightoller only referred as Beaky because he had a rather large nose, was once sent to steal some onions from a pantry while the others kept watch. Unfortunately, in addition to having a large nose, Beaky was also a bit deaf. So when a night watchman approached, Beaky could not hear the tapping of his fellow apprentices alerting him to the oncoming danger. Beaky was caught red-handed, but to everyone's luck, the watchman pretended he saw nothing. Good meals were few and far between, and although it was known that oranges could prevent scurvy, the boys were often given lime juice instead. It was not nearly as effective, but somehow they worked day in and day out and snatched food when they could. No lessons were learned from near misses. As Lytoller explained, sneaking grub was no crime. It was a religion. Lytoller continued his travel to seaports over the next few years of his life. The port of Rio de Janeiro was a personal favorite of his, despite the fears of his shipmates who expressed concern over the various ailments one might come across there. Charles had been spared from the scarlet fever that killed his mother shortly after his birth, and whether that gave him a boost of confidence or a case of arrogance, I can't really say. Cholera and smallpox were rampant in Brazil, and the Brazilians, Lytoller noted, rightfully despised the British. The country was also suffering from instability of its own. It was a, a sea of conflict, illness, and frequently, death. I cannot say the British were ever favorites in Rio, and little blame can be attached to the natives for the ill-concealed hate with which they regarded us, he reflected. On board, the sailors passed time, waiting to be allowed into Rio Harbor. The boys would jump into the water and swim to visit other crews and ships. 
there was little else to do. After finally leaving Brazil, the sailors realized that they had carried something back with them. All plans to sail to Calcutta aboard the Holt Hill were cut short as illness broke out on board. One young sailor had fallen ill. Initially, the superiors believed the sailor to be faking for some time to rest, a luxury on board a ship like that, but then it became clear it was smallpox. The smallpox, deadly enough on its own, also combined with yellow fever. The Holt Hill contained no medication, save for some castor oil. The crew began dropping, left and right, with few left standing. And yet, Lightoller appeared to be immune to both smallpox and yellow fever. A patient with the latter died in his arms. After weeks of death... The ship arrived in Cape Town, where the dead and dying were removed, and the rest of the crew remained in quarantine. After dropping its cargo and inadvertently most of its crew, the Holt Hill made its way around the Cape of Good Hope. The trouble for this ship is not over yet. But this time, the trouble was made by the ship's captain himself. On November 13th, 1889, near St. Paul, the captain noticed another boat attempting to pass them. As Charles tells it, Captain Jack Sutherland was appalled by the perceived disrespect and, in a more modern analogy, like teens revving their engines at a red light, Sutherland decided to race the other ship. On one hand, after all the torment and sickness, Charles seemed to think this would be a bit of fun— a rarity on a ship. On the other hand, the Holt Hill was not what one would call structurally sound. As he emerged from below deck, it was then he noticed something far more frightening than the prospect of losing a pissing match. The ship was headed straight for a rocky mass. He had known that Captain Sutherland had once been called, quote, the most daring cracker-on out of Liverpool. But now Charles was beginning to second question every decision he had ever made in his life. Maybe a life in the family cotton mill would have been fine. Then came the words, no sailor wants to hear. Every man for himself! Strangely, it would not be the last time Charles would hear that phrase. The Holt Hill ran aground and he went flying as the ship broke into pieces. He was haunted by his promise to his sister. I promise you, I will not drown. When he regained consciousness, he heard a loud cacophony of screeching. Somehow he had landed right next to the captain's chicken coop, which was still intact. His head had missed being crushed from a falling gear by mere inches. The collision had rendered him unconscious, but he was not cut, bleeding, or broken. He went down the mental checklist of possible injuries, but aside from dizziness, he was fine. As daylight appeared, the crew of the Holt Hill made their way ashore and realized they were marooned on an island. And while most sailors are aware this could happen and is slightly better alternative than being lost at sea, they were no doubt frightened. They did discover some huts on the island, but the occupants were long gone. The first mission was to begin a search for drinking water. 
If Lytoler was frightened, he never said it in his writings. As a young teen, he said his first thoughts were not of starvation or thirst. It was finding buried treasure. But the search for water soon overtook this Robinson Crusoe-like thought process for mythical riches away. There were 42 men on an island where the lagoons all seemed to have been flooded by seawater, undrinkable. By the second day, the search continued to be fruitless, and the thirst and exhaustion began setting in. They were dehydrated and scaling a hill. After what seemed like hours, one crew member announced that he had found drinking water. With chapped lips and shaking hands, Lytoler drank. Until the moment the water touched his lips, he was convinced it was a mirage. I'd read about mirages where you could see water, but never ones where you could actually drink it, he wrote. The crew ran down the hill to alert the other search party of the drinking water they had found and were so excited to be the saviors of the group. It turned out, however, that another search party had found one not far from where they had wrecked shortly after the other group had left. A lot of work for nothing. It was all for naught, and Lytoler simmered about this moment for the rest of his life. Six days. Six days of eating what could be found after they ate the chickens. Six days of waiting for a visible ship to notice the smoke signals. One small boat was clearly seen in the distance and either deliberately ignored the crew or had their attention elsewhere. Shortly after another vessel appeared and the flames were set higher up, they finally heard the welcome cry of, Sail ho! Conversations quickly ensued between the two crews, but there was a problem. The small boat that had found them did not have enough room for all the survivors. The captain of the smaller vessel seemed appalled because he barely had provisions for his own crew of six people. But one by one, the captain squeezed the sailors aboard his vessel. He bemoaned the tight fit, but knew that anyone left behind on the island would likely die. The trip to Adelaide's port was miserable, but all the men, stinking and bearded, jumped off, kissing the ground, and ran to find something to eat. Many years later, Charles Lightoller would visit Adelaide again. On the docks, he struck up a conversation with an elderly man. The man asked if it was Lightoller's first time in Adelaide. No, I've been here before, Lightoller remembered. I wasn't bounded here, but was saved from a shipwreck and dropped off. What ship? the man asked. The Holt Hill. And who brought you here? the man asked again. The Koranig, I believe? Captain was Hayward. The elderly man extended his hand. Glad to meet you again. I'm Captain Hayward. Lytoller continued his teens and early twenties at sea. In 1890, he mostly worked on coal cargo ships and listened to the sneers of veteran sailors who mocked the inevitable change from square-rigged ships to the new innovation of steamships. He also continued to work his way up in the ranks of every voyage, eventually being named the third mate of the Knight of St. Michael, one of the last windjammers in operation. Lights was not keen on steamships, or at least not yet. But much like silent films evolving to talkies, the sailors had to come around or be replaced. The Knight of St. Michael would provide Lytoller with another dangerous near miss. The ship met a storm, and deep in the cargo pit, the coal somehow ignited. 
However, it smoldered so slowly that it took a while for anyone to realize that there was a dangerous fire on board. It was a worst-case scenario. A fire in the middle of the ocean and no lifeboats. A cast-iron hold was stopping the boat from catching on fire, but toxic fumes forced everyone onto deck to escape the smoke and heat. With the fire contained but conditions miserable, the ship continued to port. As a contingency plan, the crew began tearing pieces of the ship off to make rafts. Once land appeared in the horizon, many began to swim to shore or attempt to use their makeshift rafts. Lightoller found himself having to provide pep talks to those who were convinced they were going to be eaten by sharks. As usual, it's hard to tell if Lightoller was ever worried about it. He seemed too amused over the poor construction of his shipmates' rafts. The men were stranded again, but this time the island was not deserted. They had landed in Bahia Blanca off the coast of Argentina. Lightoller and the captain set ashore where they managed to questionably obtain, eh, still, some horses. One of the horses immediately bucked the captain, and Lightoller was unable to control his laughter. Between some bribery and broken Spanish, they were able to get help. The sailors were fed, and the remaining crews managed to extinguish the coal fire, though the cargo was lost. They were all alive. And Lightoller, despite his mockery of the captain, was given the rank of first officer. Lightoller was not without his faults. As previously mentioned, there was an arrogance about him and a sense that he fancied himself invincible, though his track record of survival does seem to justify that belief. He was a practical joker and immature. His tomfoolery was tolerated because he was a hell of a sailor. Continuing his travels around the world, he finally met his match and faced an incident that had him questioning his abilities. He finally found an adversary, an enemy. A man named Captain Bully Waters. Bully Waters, whose real name was William, did not care for Lightoller, and it was mutual disdain. Nevertheless, Bully was his superior, and Lightoller needed the work aboard the African Royal Steamship, the Niagara. Biographer Patrick Stinson noted that Lightoller wasn't Bully's only victim, noting that everyone in Liverpool hated the man and that Bully frequently claimed to have murdered two men. He had not directly, but the two men in question had killed themselves as the better alternative than dealing with Bully. During one particularly bad storm, the Niagara was unable to make it to shore. Waters had sent his chief officer out into the gale, but it was to no avail. Waters called Lightoller to the deck and asked him what he thought the issue was. Well, the issue was clear. If the ship could not get the cargo of mahogany logs that they had been sent to retrieve, they wouldn't be paid. What do you think the problem is with the chief, Lights? Why can't he get to shore? Lightoller responded in a sarcastic manner that he was not omnipotent and that he wouldn't be able to tell unless he were out there himself. I can't form an opinion, sir, unless I had a boat myself. That's when Bully turned to him and told him, Well, then you should go. It was a dare. Either ego, anger, or righteous indignation led Lightoller to agree without hesitation. He took three men and a quartermaster along with him into the water. He did not want to give the chief officer or the captain the satisfaction of being right. But the water was too dicey, and a flash lantern could not be seen from shore. 
As the boat went into the waters, a wave caused it to overturn almost immediately. Lytler reached for the quartermaster, clasping his wrist, but his grasp slipped. He was lost. Lytler knew he needed to swim toward shore, but his wet clothes were weighing him down. Every wave cut his intake of air shorter and shorter. His mouth had caused the mess, and now he was drowning. He felt the pain and burning in his lungs and pictured Janie and the promise he gave to the woman who raised him. Don't you bother worrying. The sea is not wet enough to drown me. He started to sink into the irony of those words, but realized he had to swim. Instead of fighting the waves, he would swim headfirst into each one and come up for air in the brief seconds between. He loosened his trousers around his waist, but was unable to kick them off completely. Meanwhile, aboard the Niagara, Captain Bully realized the dare and loss of his men was going to earn him serious punishment. The concern wasn't so much for their loss as his own skin, but he began to formulate rescue or recovery, more likely the latter. He was certain all who had gone on that second boat were dead. He assumed, almost correctly, all were dead except Charles Lytoller. One final wave had thrown the man onto the shore of Grand Bassam, and there he lay, pants around his ankles, not even concerned that he was getting hit by rain because it was a far less an amount of water than he had just gotten out of. Two Ivory Coast locals noticed the pantless corpse, but as the French controlled the island, they ran to alert the authorities rather than touch the body of a sailor for fears of being accused of something like robbery or worse. Such was the time for those under colonized rule. The corpse, however, was catching his breath, and when he got enough rest and his muscles stopped aching, he reached down and pulled his pants up out of modesty and began stumbling around until he found a local sawmill and promptly was given all the whiskey he could drink. And that's how French authorities found the reported corpse on the beach, drunk in a sawmill. After being reunited with the Niagara, Bully seemed almost contrite and let Lytoller recover. But Lytoller suffered from pangs of guilt he felt for the loss of the men he had taken out to sea with him. Then he developed malaria and a nearly fatal 105-degree fever. Upon arrival back in the UK, Bully Waters was giving, quote, a dressing down, and all who worked for him following this incident said he became a more passive soul. Lytoller had won the war, but he had gotten his shipmates killed. And as the delirium of the fever set in, he had decided he was done being a sailor because he needed a break from the sea that seemed to constantly be trying to kill him. Sailing was all Lytoller had ever known, but he wanted a break, and it was a newspaper headline that would give him a brief but exciting and occasionally stupid adventure in North America. The papers spoke of gold and riches in the Yukon. And above being a sailor, Lytoller also wanted to be rich. Impulsively, he sold most of his few belongings and hopped on a boat to Montreal. From there, he and several other hopeful men from all walks of life headed for Edmonton. A life at sea could have never prepared Charles for Canada's winters, but he had stubbornness, or arrogance, or both. And this foolishly led him to thinking he could not fail. Emerson had been promoted as the best way to access the Yukon. This was pure propaganda. 
And the journey was treacherous. Lightoller arrived in Edmonton, which was hosting thousands of prospectors, most of whom would walk away empty-handed and some who would not walk away at all, their bodies littering the frozen fields. He arrived with few provisions for the wilderness and a banjo, which somehow seemed to Lightoller like part of the quintessential North American experience. Traveling alone was impossible and dangerous, and it's in Edmonton that he acquired a companion, a former seaman named Billy. Here's what you need to know about Billy. Billy had never ridden a horse in his life, and like Lightoller, hadn't a clue what he was doing. Of his partnership with Billy, Lightoller wrote that, quote, all we lacked was someone with common sense. Early on, they found a few flakes of gold, but nothing to justify the expenses and dangers. But Billy was a great singer, and Lightoller had the backup instrument, and they had a terrific time for the first few days. At some point during the journey, Lightoller spent most of his money on a horse he would call Rufus. Two Americans would join the party, and Lights was initially excited because the pair claimed to be survivalists. The Americans, unlike Billy and Charles, would never admit that they also had no clue what they were doing. Once the party came to a particularly large river, and the pair stared baffled at how to get across with the supplies and the horses, he also noticed that the two Americans were visibly frightened of noises in the silent wilderness. At one campsite, the Americans heard a distant pounding noise that went on for days. They were convinced it was a group of local indigenous folk, and they volunteered Lytoller to go investigate. Following the sound with a rifle in tow, it only took Lytoller a few moments to figure out that the echoing, pounding sound was a wood partridge. So from then on out, to keep the Americans calm, anytime they heard a strange noise in the woods, Lytoller would just say, oh, it's a, it's a bird, whether or not that was true. He noticed it seemed to keep the Americans calm. The journey was treacherous, and the party always depended on lights to help them cross the raging river since he knew how to handle horses. One particular river, the Athabasca, once again tested his luck. The currents of the river were fast, and downstream was rocky and dangerous. He would need Billy's help getting the horses across. Attempts to explain to Billy how to lead a horse to water and make it, you know, not sink, was met with confusion. It seemed simple enough that once the horse's feet are off the ground, you jump off and swim beside him. Lightoller and Rufus made it across, but it turns out Billy was as bad a swimmer as he was a horseman and was immediately swept away. Lights immediately jumped back onto Rufus and traveled as quickly as he could, keeping ever so slightly ahead of Billy while preparing to throw him a rope. If Billy missed the catch, he would have ended up underwater or crushed against some rocks. Lights tossed the rope, and Billy barely caught it. It turns out Billy's horse made it just fine on its own, but when they went to retrieve it, they found the Americans still waiting on the other banks. But the close call changed the atmosphere. A panic quiet followed. The men were forced to camp for the night. It was brutally cold and their clothes had to dry, so the party slept by a fire, rotating every few minutes like roast beef, Lytola remembered, just so that they could keep both sides warm. From campsite to campsite, Billy and Charles would bring out the banjo and put on a show. Now that's not to say it was a particularly good show. During one millside performance along a justifiably wary local indigenous group, Lightoller's banjo skills received such angry glares that he eventually just put the instrument away and didn't make a peep for the rest of the night. 
The banjo was banged up. It had been almost lost in a river and dropped down many a ravine, so it's safe to assume the tuning was not a huge priority. As the harsh winter roared around them, their food supply began to dwindle, and whenever it appeared they had struck gold, a closer look would quickly reveal they had found pyrite, otherwise known as fool's gold. Half-starved and poorer than before, Lytoler conceded. His pride was wounded, he had fell, but logically he knew it was time to fold. He and Billy split ways. Billy decided to remain in Edmonton. Lights, Rufus, and the barely functioning banjo headed east. Lytoler sold his horse remorsefully, but he knew, one, he could not afford to ship the creature back to the UK, and even if he did, he had nowhere to keep him. He gave Rufus a tender goodbye and wrote in his autobiography that the moment hurt like hell and does even still. This is where Lytoler, quote, hobos it back to the eastern shore. His pride shows through a bit here when he argues semantics, saying that hobos work and bums beg, all the while stealing away in train cars to make it across Canada. He took job after job and was even occasionally offered an accommodation, but he now found sleeping indoors a bit too stuffy. He wanted to be under the stars. At night, he would still outside. He made his way back to the Atlantic side of Canada, knowing good and well what he had to do, because it was the only thing he had ever been able to do. There's a poem called Sea Fever. I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and sky. Though the experience of the Yukon was not bountiful and he came out poorer than he had arrived, he did not regret his time there. And the wilderness had tempered some of his youthful immaturity. He joined a crew on a boat bound for Liverpool, carrying a nearly broken banjo with him. I must go down to the seas again, to the vagrant gypsy life, to the gull's way and the well's way where the wind's like a wetted knife. Lytoler immediately climbed into working towards his master certificate, something that would give him a higher ranking and make him more hireable by the growing ship industry in the UK. He was ready to go back to the sea, where he knew he belonged. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover, and quiet sleep and a sweet dream when the long trick's over. In the first edition of his biography of Lytoler, originally called Lights, but later renamed Titanic Voyager in a 1990s re-release, journalist Patrick Stinson refers to Lytoler as reformed. That being said, he was still notorious among the maritime community for pranks, mischievous deeds, and the dare with Captain Bully Waters that left four men dead. But his talents always seemed to land him on another boat, and with a master's certificate, he was to be named third mate of the Night Bachelor. Or so he thought. At first, Lytoler was crushed by the third mate ranking, thinking he was officer material, but the company placated him and assured him that someone with his skills and training would be promoted in no time. So he set off for London, but suddenly felt himself feeling ill. He was too determined to push through the sickness, and once he arrived at the dock, it only took the ship's porter a few minutes to realize just how sick Lightholder was. He was shivering. He insisted that he was fine, and through his haze, he asked the porter if the ship docked was the night bachelor. No, sir, this is the night's companion. It soon became clear that Lytoler had been bamboozled. There was no intention of him being third mate on the larger ship. Whether his arrogant reputation had preceded him or someone was playing a cruel trick, the answer was never clear. 
And then the smell of sweat and manure revealed an awful truth. Lytoller was third mate, all right. Third mate of a cattle ship. Far too sick with malaria, he accepted his fate and found a corner of the ship covered in coal and ash with only a few blankets for comfort. The knight's companion was poorly constructed and the smell of feces lingered on Clytoller's clothing. The only thing that remotely made up for this deliberate ruse was the ports of call. Barbados, Veracruz. Light spent his days wrangling cows until a particularly bad storm. While on guard duty on the bridge, Lightoller felt the ship's stern take on water as it thrashed about in the gale. One of the skippers on board mocked his concern, saying he was certain a western ocean sailor had no fear of bad weather. And then after a few more minutes, even the skipper went downstairs with Lightoller. After all, there was no point getting washed off the deck. Below deck, cabins began to flood, and cattle became injured or drowned. Forty-eight hours after the storm, Lightoller decided to quietly start looking for another company. Now, he did stick around for another year before applying for a line with a better reputation and a significantly better safety record. At the age of 24 years old, Lightoller headed for number 30 James Street in Liverpool. Home of the White Star Line. God's Favorites is written and produced by me, Melissa. A special thanks to everyone on my TikTok feed who helped make this a possibility through our Kickstarter campaign and Patreon. Sources used today were Charles Lightoller's autobiography, Titanic and Other Ships, and of course Patrick Stinson's Lights, or Titanic Voyager. Feel free to join us on TikTok over at Melissa Fairlady. Special thanks to Mike Taylor, Barbara Ratliff, Brian Clark, Susie Edge, Tracy Courtney, Dariu Shafa, Nate Allen, and everyone who has listened to me talk about this podcast nonstop for months. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast where we cover some of the people who were or thought they were God's favorites. Feel free to send your suggestions for topics to me over at melissafairlady at gmail.com. And we'll see you the week after next as Lytoler finally makes his way aboard the RMS Titanic. See you next time, friends.